Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Along the banks of the Red River in Adams, Tennessee, sits the remnants of an influential yet sometimes forgotten town, Port Royal. The town heritage is now stewarded by Tennessee State Parks. At only 30 acres, Port Royal State Park is the second smallest state park in Tennessee. But the area had a big and historic influence on our state. The town rose in prominence as an important commercial hub in the newly founded state of Tennessee. But you did not have to live in Port Royal to experience it. Businesses relied on Port Royal's waterway connections to larger towns. Enslaved people built the structures, and thousands of Cherokee were forcibly marched through the town as part of the Trail of Tears. In this River Talk, we are joined by Port Royal State Park Ranger Bobby Cooley to explore the history and influence of Port Royal. Woven throughout the story of Port Royal is the influence of one waterway, the Red River, on the growth of the town. Well, Bobby, thank you so much for joining the River Talks podcast today. I'm really excited to talk with you and learn a little bit more about Port Royal State Park. And this is a pretty small park. It's only about 30 acres or so, as far as I know, but it's definitely rich in history. Could you tell us a little bit about that Port Royal area and how such a small area had such a big influence on state and national history? Yeah, so we are 30 acres, a little bit over 30 acres. And other than Bicentennial Mall, which is, of course, downtown Nashville, we are the smallest park outside of them. But uh, we do pack a lot of history, and that's mostly due to its location. When uh, white settlers are crossing Appalachia into Tennessee, um, this is one of the first areas that they come into with names like Uh, John Montgomery, which is very familiar for people in Montgomery County, uh, and also Casper Mansker for people kind of closer to Nashville. Uh, There's an area, Mansker Station, named after him. So these early settlers are coming in as early as 1775 and kind of making their um, claims to the area. And of course, after the Revolutionary War, there are land grants granted to the area for uh, specific people. And the town gets its name because of a man named Samuel Wilcox. Um, He is from the area around Port Royal, South Carolina. So you can see where the name comes from. And if you were to look at a map of the two places, you would see that what downtown Port Royal here in Tennessee is, is basically a miniature version of what the South Carolina city was. There's two rivers coming to a convergence and a large in South Carolina, a large sandbar, but for us, a small gravel bar that was located at the convergence of those two rivers. So it's very easy to see where the namesake came from. As far as uh, importance, you know, it goes back to statehood. So Port Royal was located in the center of what was Tennessee County. And when delegates are sent to vote, four out of the five delegates from this area are actually sent from the Port Royal area and uh, vote for statehood from here. Now, after statehood, the uh, Tennessee County splits into 
Robertson and Montgomery County, and there's portions of other counties involved there, but those are the two that it splits from. So now instead of being at the center of one of the former counties before statehood, it sits literally on the county line of two counties afterwards. And um, it's established on October 25th, 1797. So a year after statehood, the city is established. And pretty quickly, it serves a regional importance to the area due to the creation and sort of designation of the town as a statewide tobacco inspection point and warehouse. There's a, been some research done and we basically found that prior to Tennessee statehood when like Virginia and South Carolina and North Carolina are the main tobacco dealers, there was no set guarantee on what the farmers were selling when they went overseas. So essentially, you could have a farmer fill up half of a hogshead barrel, which is like these massive six foot looking whiskey barrels with just trash. And then the rest of it with really good tobacco, seal it, send it overseas. You don't have an Amazon receipt back in those days. And so you basically end up with a product you didn't even pay for. And Virginia quickly realizes that to make sure their tobacco is considered high quality, they create an inspection point and Tennessee quickly adopts it after statehood. Um, so for this region, Port Royal is one of only a handful of places that farmers had to go to to inspect the tobacco for Tennessee's insurance when it went overseas to the New Orleans market uh, of the quality of tobacco being sold there. And uh, other than really Palmyra and Clarksville, uh, Port Royal is the only place in this area that you would have had um, an inspection point. And for most of Robertson County on the Sulphur Fork and the Red River, that's your spot because Port Royal is the first place in Montgomery County. So really you're serving Robertson County and even a little bit into Kentucky if they bring it all the way down river to you. And you have massive plantations in uh, Robertson County that are bringing the tobacco there, including uh, Wessington, which um, are family members of the Washington family and had at one point the largest tobacco plantation in the United States with one of the largest um, enslaved populations. And it is rumored that when the Wessington plantation got their tobacco to New Orleans, they actually had to shut down the tobacco market for a few days to process all the tobacco coming through. So um, as Port Royal serves that pivotal role as they float by, um, a lot of commerce and a lot of money and uh, even when, when you hear four of the five delegates for the area coming from Port Royal, you see there's a lot of power in this small area, even though the town was really never the size of Clarksville or Nashville. Yeah, it's amazing how such a small area can have such a big influence and then that influence changed through time, which I know we'll talk a little bit about as well. But you mentioned a few of the examples of how Port Royal being really right on the Red River allowed a lot of this commerce. Um, I know that there were also some mills that were along the river. Kind of how else were people that lived in Port Royal really connected to using our waterways? Flatboats were the highways of, or were the semi-trucks of the past, and uh, rivers were the highways of the past. And so Port Royal was connected to really the world thanks to the Red River. And, you know, the, the mills uh, were other ways that businessmen and uh, wealthy 
merchants in the area tried to make some money, but the value of the river and unimpeded access from up into Kentucky to the Cumberland and beyond was so pivotal for most of the people that anytime a mill was built or considered, um, it was hotly debated. And oftentimes the people at the mill site and maybe downriver are in support of it because there's going to be money involved. People upriver, though, they realize they're about to be cut off from access to, again, the highways of the day. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how many acts of, you know, uh, sort of lawsuits and, and different things are being sent through uh, local and even state uh, court systems to try to prevent or to create a dam that allows flatboats to go over the top of it if they are going to build it. The river um, served a, a great purpose because the way that it floods, you know, periodically in the spring and everything is also almost exactly coinciding with the, at least tobacco production. And so, you know, once tobacco is processed and everything in the fall packaged and ready to send, you would have these flatboats constructed in and around Port Royal, but really any farmer that had a skilled enough laborer or enslaved person to build one would have one. And then you would just set it up and wait for the spring waters to come through. Um, the Red River isn't year-round navigable, but it is for about three or four months out of the year and all the gravel bars go into water. And so that was its true connection um, to the rest of the world during that time. It's interesting to think about something flooding and that being advantageous, you know, instead of what we think about now where, oh no, it's flooded or it's breaking its banks. But really that was the way that, okay, this is our three to four months. We can really get down this waterway. That's really interesting. So obviously Port Royal now doesn't necessarily have the same influence or power that we think about in the state of Tennessee. And I know you all talk about it kind of going from commerce to collapse. So what sort of happened there? How did that happen? Why did that happen? Um, And is there anything left from kind of Port Royal from what it was in its heyday? The town really sees the the peak of of this commerce and really it's at economic status. In the 1840s, um, all the way really until the Civil War occurs. Um, And that's mostly due to the fact that flatboats are still the main uh, use of transporting goods up until the 1850s. And you also have uh, large investments from private individuals coming into Port Royal in the late 1830s that um, allowed the town to continue to evolve into a a larger community. There's this revivalism of the town from a man named Abraham Gaines, who kind of purchases the town and becomes a um, surveyor and also sort of just like the owner of the town in a lot of ways. A lot of these small towns have proprietors, essentially. And when he comes in, you see a massive boom in the community. You have the Tennessee Manufacturing Silk Company and Agricultural School established there which is uh, really a state-supported silk manufacturing uh, fad that kind of peaked in the 1840s but began in the 1830s. And the largest manufacturing facility for Tennessee was built at Port Royal on one of the the old dams that had been built years prior. And um, one of the governors elected in 1848 named uh, James Jones 
he actually wore a silk suit made from the company at Port Royal as sort of a, a tie-in. So that says a lot because then you have state and, and governorship being very aware of the importance of the community. But just a few years later, something very topical for us in the modern world, uh, a disease and a, a sickness and a virus takes hold within the silkworms that are in and around Port Royal. You know, they're originally from Asia. They're not supposed to be here. And the mulberry trees that feed on here are not the same types of mulberry trees. And so while initially they see massive gains and massive um, sort of market for this new silk, it's quickly made aware that it's not going to be as good a silk as it is from Asia. And then again, by the late 1840s, it's, it's all gone because the silkworms are dying out. And unfortunately, uh, a way to, for sort of farmers to make a little extra money growing silkworms for this manufacturing company is lost. And that's sort of the first decline in the community. But really, the, the biggest hit is the railroads coming through. So all around Port Royal, there are now railroads, but not in Port Royal. Just a few miles to the east, you have Adams, Tennessee, which initially was called Adams Station because it was just a railroad spot. Uh, just north of us, we have Guthrie, which had as many railroad junctions as any major city at the turn of the 20th century. And of course, just to the west, northwest, you have Clarksville, which is a massive city that was not only a, a city built because of the river, but is now a city that has railroad traffic coming through so the commerce can stay. Uh, and unfortunately, all of those are within 10 miles of Port Royal. And so the entire industry leaves and goes to these other nearby communities. Now, you don't see a, a complete die off of the town. You do see a little bit of a, uh, a changing of the guard and a lot of the wealthy individuals are leaving. But the ones who owned massive plantations, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of acres in size, the ones whose grandparents children's grandchildrens are set, those aren't leaving Port Royal because they have plenty of, of wealth to, to continue living there. But any of the small merchants in town that weren't farmers were also leaving. So before the railroads, you have flatboat merchants that would kind of be middlemen to take your flatboats downstream for you. It was a dangerous job. So if you have money to pay for someone to do it, you would. Uh, taverns, inns, things like that, those all eventually do leave because people aren't coming to the town anymore either. So as far as what's left in the town, uh, not a lot. Um, we have one building currently, and it is a building that was a Masonic Lodge and also a general store. It was constructed in 1859, and it has seen a lot of wear and tear. Um, it's been the community center for literally anything and everything because it's the only building that's lasted. So even though it was a Masonic Lodge upstairs in the later years, it's a community center. It's a dance hall. It's a church meeting area. The general store, you know, is also a post office. By the 20th century, it's a telephone switchboard room. I mean, it is a uh, serve all to the community. And it, it's also seen a lot of damage because of that. Um, you have, of course, 
over a hundred years of wear and tear, but also uh, tornadoes came through in the early 20th century and ripped off the second story of the building. The owner at the time um, decided that the downstairs was fine. So literally just placed a roof where the roof was ripped off and uh, continued operating a store out of it until the state bought it. And the state actually decided to rebuild that second story to make it look closer to its original um, size and its original look. And we are right now trying to take that even to the next step and through historic preservation practices, put the lodge back to how it was really in the 1860s and 1870s. As far as uh, anything else, we have foundation stones in the old downtown area, uh, specifically one of the inspection point and then also what later became an inn. There is true foundation stones left, but other than that, uh, most of the stuff is either underground or completely gone, unfortunately. So interpretive panels are really our only way right now of telling people about the town and where everything was. But we do hope with um, some help in the future and maybe some ground penetrating radar, we can really identify exactly where each of these places were and mark them off so people can tell just how large of a town it really was. Because Right now, when you walk down what was Main Street, it looks like you're walking through a uh, serene forest. So, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely different than how it was a few hundred years ago. Yeah, I think about that with some of the state parks that are more archaeological sites where you're thinking thousands of years in the past and you sort of think, oh, okay, of course, a lot of these buildings aren't here. But you're talking, you know, maybe 120, 150 years and you're still walking through a field. So that's it's really interesting to think about using that technology to, to learn more. And, and when you think about, I guess, the size of the state park compared to what the size of Port Royal was, so saying Port Royal, the state park is about 30 acres. How big was Port Royal, the city? Was it also about 30 acres or was it a little bit bigger from what you guys have now? So that is a very difficult question for us to ask and answer because um, we ask ourselves that all the time. And essentially, if you go back far enough and you use the town as the location for a post office, Port Royal in that sense is, is pretty large. You have essentially what is Adams and even a little bit past Adams coming to Port Royal for a post office during different years. And you have areas as close to Sango, which is a small community within Clarksville now using the post office in Port Royal as well. So for postal routes, Port Royal is sort of the community hub because it was larger at the time than those other areas. But um, really for people to say, like, I lived in Port Royal, it's probably only going to be about five to seven miles surrounding the current park. And really the Red River that um, cuts through the park uh, on the one side, you have the town and everything on the other side, while they would have actually been Closer to Port Royal, a lot of them actually choose areas like Guthrie or a community now gone called Sadlersville because there wasn't a river crossing and it was a little bit easier to get to. But anything on the side of the river the town is located, generally five to seven miles around it, um, are all going to be coming to the town. And you see the town even in the 1880s, um, the general store in the town, having businesses from Cedar Hill come all the way over to buy goods. So it's still serves an important role in the greater area, even though the town continued to shrink throughout the 19th century. 
never thought about using post offices like that to figure out kind of the reach of an area. That's it's a really interesting approach. And of course, we don't have can't just Google it and say, OK, what does Google say? You know, how big is Port Royal? So it's a much tougher historic question than maybe what it seems. Absolutely. And Port Royal, I know, was also, you know, we've talked a lot, a lot about its role in commerce, uh, but it was also part of the Trail of Tears that that came through Tennessee. So could you tell us about what was experienced as, um, you know, Cherokee people were moved through Tennessee and specifically through Port Royal? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the, the forced removal of Cherokee and really all of what is now considered a derogatory term, but has continued to be used, which is the civilized tribes, um, is probably one of the greatest stains on American history. And for literally the entire state of Tennessee, you have multiple routes, the, the largest of which, and the one that most Cherokee were forcibly removed over, uh, called the Northern Route. Uh, and it actually you know, starts and um, sort of the last council grounds of the Cherokee at Red Clay State Park, which is another park in our system. And then the end of the trail in Tennessee, at least, um, is Port Royal State Park. So on a map, you can see it crosses, you know, very rough terrain. You start in the Appalachian Mountains, you go through the Cumberland Plateau, you cross through the Nashville Basin, and then you end up in the uh, greater Pennyrile area. And anyone who travels Tennessee knows how many rivers there are to cross and how many bridges you walk across. And a lot of those weren't there at the time. And so this is a, uh, a devastating march for these people because they're dying uh, regularly along this path. And um, for, for Port Royal's place on, on this story, um, we know that it was a stopping point pretty regularly for different detachments. And a detachment was about a thousand or so um, Cherokee with elders or high ranking members within their society kind of being the leaders as they were marched. Um, and we have a letter from um, Chief John Ross's brother-in-law about um, staying in Port Royal. His, his name was Elijah Hicks and he was married to John Ross's uh, sister. And he discusses the, uh, the issues and the difficult times that his people are already facing. And it's only been a few hundred miles and they have so many more hundreds of miles to go. And he talks about how this, the act of wicked men and um, he, he's completely truthful. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds the idea that they are allowed to stay in their place. And then President Andrew Jackson, a Tennessee native, decides that he is going to sort of ignore the will of the U.S. Supreme Court, which is supposed to be a, a checks and balance to make sure that one either individual or one separate power within our government doesn't have too much control. And yet he knew the Supreme Court really couldn't do anything except for rule. And he had an army and the Supreme Court did not. And so with that decision, the Indian Removal Act is kind of implemented and thousands upon thousands of Cherokee are removed from their ancestral homelands to really a, an unknown. And that's what we try more than anything to talk about when people visit is, you know, even though the state of Tennessee is a white border created area, the name is indigenous and the idea of Tennessee as these ancestral 
um, lands for not just the Cherokee, but for multiple groups is this is also the land that they know. They know how to survive on this land. They know how to live during each different season. They know what plants to use for different medical needs or for eating. And once you cross that Mississippi River, you won't know any of that anymore. And uh, that more than anything is uh, what we try to sort of emphasize when we talk about this removal. Um, Cause it's also easy to see where our about 200 yards of the trail is that um, it's flat river bottom. And someone could easily assume that this was difficult but you're just walking on flat land, right? And that's when you have to bring in the fact that, you know, the river behind us, they had to cross. And that was one of many and one of the smaller ones of many that they had to cross. The flat lands you see and that you're walking on right now, that is not something they experienced regularly, especially in the rolling hills of Tennessee and the mountains of East Tennessee. And those sort of intangibles that uh, you can't explain to people because the difficulty is unexplainable. Um, is really what we try to hone in on so that people can grasp just how severe and how deadly and how unnecessary this part of our history was. Absolutely. And it's great that you all are really talking about that and talking about it as it pertains to Port Royal. And is there any evidence, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that this was happening concurrently with what we were talking about earlier, a lot of this commerce. And so are there, um, is there evidence of kind of um, as the Trail of Tears and people were moving through Port Royal, that the people in the commerce were sort of seeing that interaction? Like, what type of interaction did they have between the Cherokee moving through and those in the commerce? The town isn't at its peak, but it's getting close to its peak. And the route that the Cherokee were forcibly removed through is literally down the main street of Port Royal. Now, we don't have evidence of Port Royal, but there is evidence of other areas and other towns where people literally throughout the town would come and line the streets as they were marched through. And so it's likely that that happened. And um, when they did camp at Port Royal, they did use some of the uh, mills to kind of resupply. Now they're not resupplying on anything, you know, great. It's not like they're going to a grocery store and buying everything they need. They're basically buying the essentials to survive. And um, we do have receipts from some of those purchases. So um, to that extent, uh, we know that, you know, the people in Port Royal were extremely aware of what was happening and likely, just like many other towns, witnessed it as they were marched through. And there's also, you know, multiple local legends of um, families trading with Cherokee for goods for uh, different artifacts or different pieces of clothing. But um, none of those can really be substantiated. But um, the fact that there are so many of those sort of uh, family um, heirlooms or family rumors and stories suggest that it likely did happen to some degree. I always find that interesting when I, you know, I'm not a history person by nature, but having these conversations and thinking about all of these things happening concurrently, you know, we think we kind of compartmentalize the Trail of Tears, we compartmentalize, you know, this other part of Tennessee history. And then when you realize they're all happening simultaneously, you get these interesting thoughts of people lining the streets as people are being, you know, forcibly marched through the town. And I think that gives a lot more perspective and brings that history, just like what we're, we live every day, you know, how all of those things connect. Um, and you've mentioned a few times that this Port Royal area and Robertson and Montgomery County, 
county were also supported a lot by enslaved people on plantations. And so could you talk a little bit about the um, history of the Black communities in that, in that region, both for Port Royal kind of before and after the Civil War? One thing that um, more than anything that we try to do is that we want to tell the most holistic story of all the people that experience the town. You don't just have to live in Port Royal to experience it. You know, the Cherokee didn't live there, but they experienced something there. One of the things that we want to you know, kind of hone in on is the experience of the enslaved population and formerly enslaved after the Civil War that lived in and around Port Royal. Um, I, I know I kind of touched on it earlier, but you have the Wessington Plantation just a few miles up the Sulphur Fork in Robertson County. Again, one of the largest plantations in the United States and the largest tobacco plantation, which if you don't know, tobacco is one of the most difficult and labor intensive crops that you can grow. So this is not an easy lifestyle for anyone living on these plantations. For the uh, the rural community around Port Royal, that is going to be the life of an enslaved person, is going to be tobacco farming or agriculture. But oftentimes we, we don't recognize that um, a good portion of the enslaved were extremely talented and skilled laborers. Um, so when you see a brick building prior to the 1860s being constructed, especially in the South, and you, you know, are amazed by how beautifully it's done, you need to be amazed at the hands of a black skilled tradesman that's doing it. And uh, one thing that really allows us to incorporate that story extremely well at Port Royal is that we do have what we believe is a thumbprint, but is essentially a fingerprint um, within a brick on the front of the Masonic Lodge. And we know enslaved people were the ones that constructed this lodge. And so a fingerprint like that may be the only piece of identity left from an enslaved person being forced to build that structure. Uh, and that goes for any of the buildings that were in Port Royal. Uh, most of them, especially if they were larger and uh, were owned by wealthy individuals, are going to be built by an enslaved population. Um, we have different uh, either receipts or um, articles describing how oftentimes you would rent out an enslaved person that was a you know extremely skilled carpenter or a brick mason to these different jobs because they were able to do it at an extremely high and talented level and um, we try to incorporate that just as much as the rural agricultural enslavement because both of them are so integral to how the town was constructed um, which is again on the backs of all of the stolen labor now when the civil war comes through and emancipation is granted um, we do see a uh, an interesting community within port royal develop because the town sees a lot of the uh, merchants and different individuals leave to go find business in the communities that now have railroads you see the formerly enslaved purchasing some of the land and even purchasing some land within the downtown area of Port Royal to, for the first time ever, under their own accord, create their own legacy. And you have a, um, a benevolent society, which is just a fraternal organization, literally devoted to caring for the sick and burying the dead. 
um, built as early as the 1870s and a church named Mount Zion Baptist Church built in or established in the 1860s and uh, eventually gets a structure by the late 1860s. Those communities are still here today. The church is still functioning. It's not in the same site. It's about you know, two or three miles from where it was originally built, but now they have a brick structure uh, right on Highway 76 before you turn left towards Port Royal. And the Benevolent Lodge, it's just two miles up the road from us. And uh, we still communicate with that community and um, especially with the Benevolent Lodge. When we uh, created some of the interpretive panels, you know, we went to them and we said, hey, these are the interpretive panels we have for Port Royal, this is the story we want to share. Uh, can we just get your opinion? Um, and you don't, you tell us, yeah, this sounds good or no, we don't think this or no, that's not how we remember it. Um, and we listened and any edits that they did have, um, we were more than happy to um, add back into the, uh, the interpretation of the site. And really with the post-Civil War story, we have an extremely unique opportunity to learn a lot about some of the formerly enslaved because there is a book written in I think it's 1911 called uh, Pioneer Colored Christians. Now this book essentially is a, a genealogy storybook but um, it's a, a woman named um, Harriet Parks Miller who uh, also wrote one of the Bell Witch books uh, but actually interviews a lot of the formerly enslaved in Port Royal. She lived nearby and, um, you know, you don't see that very often, especially at the turn of the 20th century. So she was, for her time at least, probably a pretty progressive woman to go out and search for all these formerly enslaved people and to get their story and for them to sort of express how it was like. Um, we do take that book with a grain of salt. You know, you have a pretty influential white woman interviewing you. Um, some of the people she's interviewing were likely, or their family were likely enslaved by this woman's family. And so some of the wording and some of the phrases, you know, you, you always need to read between the lines with these types of interviews, but um, to get their stories, their families, their names, and, you know, what jobs they had after they were emancipated, um, what kind of uh, fun they got up to. I mean, they talk about uh, different activities they did after emancipation and some of the folklore and stories that they shared. Um, that is really a, a treasure for us to have because a lot of communities, either large cities like Nashville or small communities like Springfield and Adams, um, you don't have that information anymore and so uh, we definitely understand how valuable it is and we use it to the fullest extent we can. It's great about the relationship you have with those communities today and being able to rely on them for that interpretation and understanding the oral history and and really bringing that into how the park is interpreted because like you said you know all of these people even if they didn't live there they you know they came there to build a building and then they went back or they moved through there like the Cherokee you were talking about and so I think it's important as you all are doing to integrate all of that history. Uh, one of the other things about this Port Royal area that again has come up a lot as we've been talking is just how influential tobacco was and really still is in this region as well. And I know you mentioned that there was um, some tobacco wars in this area. Could you talk a little bit about that? That is a new concept for me. You are not the first one to say it's a new concept and uh, it shocks me and almost saddens me in a way that this story hasn't been told more because 
I think it's an amazing story and it doesn't just involve Port Royal, but Port Royal is a part of it. And so, yeah, tobacco in Robertson and Montgomery County for Tennessee, and then Todd and Christian County and other counties within really Western Kentucky, uh, tobacco is the lifeblood of the agricultural economy and really the general economy because it's on tobacco that other businesses are built. And early on, it's kind of nicknamed a few different things. You have this like heavy tobacco shipping label for anything around Clarksville in the early 19th century. And then right before and after the Civil War, it's just called the Clarksville District because Clarksville at the time was the largest community and being on the Cumberland, it makes sense. But then as you move uh, closer and closer to the 20th century, you get these areas called the Little Black Patch or the Black Patch. And eventually by the 1900s, it is called the Black Patch region. And it basically reaches from Clarksville up to uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, over to um, Princeton, Kentucky, and kind of down to uh, Springfield and even Ashland City, and then back over to Clarksville. So it's a pretty large area, but there's a specific type of tobacco grown here called dark-fired tobacco. Um, it's a very unique uh, way of curing tobacco here. So you don't just um, cut the tobacco down and hang it in a barn. You actually smoke it and uh, set a fire in your barn to give it this rich flavor. And if you've never been in the area when they are curing this tobacco, um, it does look like barns are on fire. Um, and the new people that move here are often laughed at because they do call the fire department thinking that a barn is on fire, but it's not. And so really that's the idea of tobacco. Uh, and over time, it's turned into a, an actual region for tobacco growing. And in the early 1900s, you have a, a massive issue with monopolization. Uh, and, you know, I don't think tobacco by any means is the only thing being monopolized at this time. You have the Carnegie's, you have uh, American Steel, you have the railroads, you have the Vanderbilts. Um, so uh, monopolization at the turn of the 20th century is nothing new. But for tobacco, one man named James B. Duke monopolized literally 95% of the world's tobacco market by 1904. We're not talking about just selling it. We're talking about from the seeds going into the ground to the cigarettes being rolled and being labeled under multiple different companies to sell to the people. Uh, in 1901 and 1902, once he grabs over 90% of the market, he plummets the price that he is going to pay for tobacco. And it gets to the point where it is costing farmers more to put a tobacco seed into the ground than what that tobacco seed will profit. And if that's your livelihood and that's been your generational livelihood, you are not going to stand for that long without calling to action for something. Uh, and another issue is that there is this tax on tobacco and, and liquor as well, but on tobacco that has lasted since the Civil War. Um, when the U.S needed to fund the U.S. military against the Confederacy, they put in multiple different taxes to help pay for the military to continue operating. And by the end of the war, they get rid of most of them. But the tobacco and liquor tax actually stay. And by the 1870s, it is one of the largest taxes funding the entire government because of how popular 
tobacco and liquor are at the time. And so it's kind of a two-pronged attack once farmers start getting together. One, they want this tax gone. And two, they want the prices they were getting just a few years ago back because they realize it's a monopoly. Just like any good story, it starts out peaceful, right? Um, and uh, actually in Port Royal, we have evidence to say that the leaders of this association that is created thought of the idea and met regularly in Port Royal before kind of finalizing it and giving it to the people. Uh, their names were Felix Ewing, uh, Joel and Charles Fort, and uh, John Gaines, who was a senator at the time. And they meet in early 1904. And in September of the same year, they announce what's known as the Planners Protective Association uh, in Guthrie because of the railroad. You could get more people there quicker. And it was on the state line. So not only do you have Tennessee, but you also have Kentucky people involved. And it's essentially unionizing agriculture, um, which again is, is very uh, interesting. Um, you don't consider agriculture as a, a unionized uh, mechanism. Uh, it's mostly labor, but how do you get agricultural? It's through personal labor or through farm labor. And they agreed essentially to withhold as much of their tobacco as possible because you know the region is the only place in the world it can be grown so they're going to withhold it until they get the price they want but the only way it was successful is if everyone was on board and of course once they announce this duke starts giving individuals better prices so that he can continue buying tobacco and that's when the violence occurs and uh, a group uh, known as the night riders are formed and they are a vigilante justice group that go around terrorizing really all of western kentucky and parts of tennessee um, they successfully attack and raid towns as large as hopkinsville and princeton they literally block off the roads block off the fire department block off the police department from being able to react to their attack like guerrilla style warfare and then they go in and burn warehouses that are associated with james b duke um, they do that for multiple different towns as a way to show their force. They attack farmers and scrape their tobacco beds if they're not joining the association. And uh, for Port Royal, we have a, a pretty unique distinction because even though it was still a small town and a small attack, um, we're the only attack from Night Riders in Tennessee that was successful. Um, Clarksville was targeted, but never happened. And they um, attacked through the masonic lodge that i mentioned earlier that still stands tied up the telephone booth switchboard operator and went down the road and attacked a local who was considered a spy um, about 30 to 40 men in masks and um, it's a very uh devastating and very uh, difficult period but um, something that is important to the region because the effects of the tobacco wars are still seen today. Um, the Planners Protective Association was able to lobby and successfully get the American Tobacco Company um, to go against the Supreme Court. And it was ruled that the American Tobacco Company was a monopoly and the asterisk or the amendment to the, uh, the laws to prevent monopolies comes from this period, which is, before monopolies were considered one person or one company owning everything, Duke circumvented that by owning multiple companies. 
And so with the help of the Planners Protective Association, uh, they get it amended. So one person couldn't own multiple companies and not be considered a monopoly anymore. And they actually trust busted um, the tobacco. So, you know, when you see Amazon, when you see Walmart, when you see Disney continue to grow, eventually it will be the laws put in place from farmers in the Red River watershed um, that uh, will hopefully prevent those companies from continuing to grow and allow for free market to continue. Red River watershed versus Amazon. I love it. That, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. That's foretelling such an interesting future. Well, this has been fascinating thinking again, back to the size of the state park that you guys have again, right around 30 acres and how influential this one area has been and continues to be. And um, I feel like we have just scratched the surface on a lot of these different topics today. So if people want to learn more, tell us a little bit about what you all offer at the state park in terms of programs and opportunities for people to engage more in this history. Yeah, so every Saturday and Sunday right now at one o'clock, we have um, uh, site tours. Essentially, you will get to see the entire downtown area um, with an interpreter, most likely me, um, but other rangers uh, are also available. And it's also the, uh, the one time right now we allow people to go inside the Masonic Lodge because um, it is under renovation. So it's kind of unsafe for anyone right now, but uh, that's kind of your early access. Uh, there is a $5 charge to that program. Other than that, we have intermittent slash seasonal programming right now. Um, we are an extremely small staff. It's mostly myself and the park manager. So we do programming when it allows. And when spring pops back up here in a few months, um, we will be offering Trail of Tears programs. Those will be free. They're about 45 minutes. And we kind of go over what I talked about today, but in a little bit more detail. And you'll see um, examples of the receipts and the letters that were written from the area. We also have other programs throughout the year focusing on the tobacco wars or focusing on the Planners Protective Association being formed there. Um, we have a unique program every now and then that will talk about the public square of Port Royal because it was technically an angle. Um, and so we just thought it was super neat that on all the maps, it was called the public angle instead of the public square. Uh, and then uh, programs over a uh, bridge that is located in the park. It's the Sulphur Fork Bridge. It's a wrought iron bridge, but it's Pratt Trust design and it's from 1890. And we'll just talk about the, the construction of it, the the architecture of the bridge and its important role in early 20th century and late 19th century development of the area for farmers to continue to sell their goods. We also have one living history program right now over the tobacco wars. It'll be in March. So if you go to our website, you'll see it pop up here shortly. And uh, we recreate in some ways the attack on Poro, but we also go into the larger picture and discuss the effects of the tobacco wars in general. And in October, we usually try to do something along the lines of myths and music and uh, spirituality uh, uh, around Halloween, of course, because you do have stories of the Bell Witch nearby and you do have a lot of interesting uh, myths about Port Royal that uh, make really good storytelling opportunities. So uh, we do have a lot going on, but it's mostly spread out throughout the year so that we have time to do it. Sounds like a great reason to come back again and again. Every time you've got a new program, learn a little bit of something different. 
Well, thank you so much, Bobby, again, for joining me today. This was really fascinating just to, again, hear the beginning of some of these stories and looking forward to, to learning more. I want to thank you all for the opportunity. Anytime we can highlight this tiny little site, uh, we will do so to our fullest extent. So we appreciate it, too. Thank you to Bobby Cooley for joining today's River Talk. You can learn more about the resources mentioned in this episode on our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org blog. If you are interested in visiting the park, check out our Rendezvous on the Red Basin Explorer Guide for all the details on planning a day trip. Our Basin Explorer Guides highlight parks, shopping, dining, and entertainment for areas across the Cumberland River Basin. More information at cumberlandriverbasin.org. 